0: The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org.
1: A reading from Psalm 64. You can find this um, in your pew Bibles on, I believe, page 480. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of lying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Friends, let's stand for the reading of the gospel. Gospel reading this morning comes from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. That's on page 894 of your pew Bibles. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to meet him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst, and they said to him, in placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The gospel of the Lord.
0: Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Dan. I'm Truly grateful to serve here as a pastor. Uh, I want to give a special welcome to students that are back in town, both at the University of Richmond and also at VCU. Welcome. You all are a vital and integral part of our congregation, even though we only have you for part of the year and We know that you are here in Richmond uh, to study you 're here pursuing degrees and that 's great. But we also know that you 're asking big questions about purpose and identity. Uh, and just what the shape of your life is going to be like. And we are glad to be conversation partners with you in that journey. So welcome, students. We're glad you're here. Now, by way of orientation for all of us, we are in the season called Ordinary Time, which is a season of the church calendar devoted to asking a question. How do we make our life with Christ in the simple, mundane, common places of our lives? And this summer, what we've done is we've taken that question and we've brought it with us to the Psalms the prayer book of the Bible in which every human emotion and experience is dignified and elevated in prayer towards God. And next week, just to give you a preview, we're going to kick off our fall sermon series on the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, But for today, we're going to conclude our summer summer series with Psalm 64. Let me say a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Amen. So uh, some of you uh, who know our family will know this, but one of our uh, family's favorite ways to spend an evening during these final golden days of summer is to get takeout pizza from Ariana's Um, and then to go to the pool and to spend the evening uh, eating dinner and playing there. And this is kind of the setup. Rachel and I will sit at a table and we'll eat and we'll talk. We'll kind of debrief the day and our kids uh, will go off the diving board. And we have to strategically position the table next to the diving board so that we can watch them do their tricks. And uh, each one of them, before they go off, will very enthusiastically make sure that we are paying attention before they jump off into the water. Now, inevitably, this only lasts for about 35 seconds before they tire of this, and the invitations begin for us to join them in the water. And then we have to go through the whole ritualistic liturgy of hemming and hawing and complaining and bemoaning about how the water's too cold and my back is too sore and I'm too tired, all the excuses parents make to not play with their kids. Um, but eventually the excuses run out they win uh, they've worn us down and so into the water we go and sometimes they are content with us merely joining them in the pool but sometimes as was the case a few weeks ago a game was proposed let's play tag one of them squealed dad's it mom is base so off we go me sloshing through chest-deep water, kids kicking frantically to try to get away, and every time I get too close, they make a beeline for mom, and then once there, they begin to climb out of the water, onto her shoulders, up onto her head, like penguins trying to get away from a leopard seal by climbing onto an ice floe. I know all of you have done this. All of you have played tag. If you haven't played tag, I don't think you're a human. Um, But here's the thing. In this game of tag... The most glorious thing is being on base, right? Because when you're on base, you're safe. And as I watched my penguins, children, uh, I realized something, it just kind of something occurred to me. Something, I realized something that this game that we are playing in so many ways maps onto their lived reality every day of their lives. Think about this. Mom is base. This is the mom who feeds them This is the mother who tends to their cuts and bruises. This is the mother who soothes them when bad dreams come in the middle of the night. This is the mother who listens with empathy when other kids are mean and feelings are hurt. This is the mother who is base for them all day, every day. And this need for base, this like place of of refuge, a safe haven, a sanctuary, is needed by more human beings in more places in the world than ever before, children and adults included. Because the world that you and I woke up to this morning, I know you know this as well as I do, it's not a safe place, is it? And all of us feel it. And if you, like me, woke up in a bed, in a home with locked doors, and you slept peacefully without threat of violence or abuse or harm, then you and I are in the minority who slept in safety last night. Because most of our neighbors around the world, including tens of thousands of our neighbors right here in the city of Richmond, did not have that experience last night. Instead, they spent the dark hours of the night watching and waiting and fearing, perhaps praying, not to hear a gunshot, no, or, the, or the sound of breaking glass of a window, or the siren of an ambulance, or the violent pounding on the door, or the footsteps of an abusive relative creeping down the hallway. And many of us, and so many of our neighbors, in the terror of the darkness, would trade anything for base, a hiding place, a safe place to be hidden and to rest. And this fear that I'm talking about, that so many of us feel, and the need that it creates within us for safety, did you know that that's not just you? If you walked in here this morning, you're thinking that you're probably the only person who feels that kind of craving, that need for a safe haven. No, you're not alone. And you're not only not alone in this room, you're not alone in the story of the human uh, race, in the story of the Bible. Think about this. The Bible knows something about this need for safety. The biblical story begins with creation, where the Garden of Eden is this place of safety because of the presence of God. But then after the fall into sin, where human beings seek to find their life outside of God, the world is cast into the darkness of fear and danger, and no longer are human beings able to lay down their heads to sleep in peace. There are enemies. But in the midst of the danger of enemies, God continues to invite his people to find their refuge in him. And he forms a people for himself in Israel, and he gives to them the vocation of being a safe haven, a place of refuge, a base for the world. That's the vocation of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And we see it when Abraham welcomes the three travelers. We see it when Lot welcomes the angels. We see it when God himself tends to Hagar and Ishmael. We see it when Rahab protects the Israelite spies in Jericho. We see it when Boaz shelters Ruth. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, and we see it most clearly in the person and work of Jesus, God incarnate, who comes to protect and shelter the vulnerable people who come to him seeking refuge. And all of this culminates in the story of the new creation, at the very end of the Bible, where we see this future new city promised, where the presence of God once again makes the world a safe place for humanity. You see, you need to know this. The story of the Bible dignifies both the real fear and the vulnerability of this world that we all experience, And also the hope that we have for a hiding place, for a safe place, for a base. And it's into that larger story that we have our text, Psalm 64. It's a Psalm of David. Not all the Psalms are written by David. I hope you know that. But this one was. This is written by David. It's a desperate plea for safety. Because David's got real enemies, right? And I don't mean that like people didn't like his Instagram post. Like he has real enemies who want to hurt him. He knows what it means to lie down, to sleep at night, and to lie awake at the dark, and to wonder if someone is gonna kill him in the middle of the night. That's his life. And he knows what it means to have people spreading rumors about him and to know that his reputation would, with some folks, never recover. He knew the nauseating feeling in his gut that there were real people with real names who hated him. And you know what he did with all of that fear? he prayed his fear. That's what Psalm 64 is. David is praying his fear to God. He's asking God, begging God to shelter him and to hide him, which is why the psalm begins with these two sentences. Verses one and two, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers. You know, I bet there are some of you that needed to pray something like that this morning. You probably didn't. I mean, maybe you did, but you probably didn't. But you, maybe you needed to pray something like that this morning. And others of you actually needed that to pray that prayer a long time ago, probably last year. Remember last year when things got really hard? You needed to pray it then. And still others of you, and I'm not trying to like weirdly predict anything, but odds are you're going to need to pray this prayer in about two weeks. Something's going to happen, and you're going to need this prayer. And still others of us are going to need this prayer to care for our very real neighbors and our very real friends who are going to need a hiding place. And so with the rest of our time, we want to look at the remainder of this text and simply ask, what does it mean for us to be hidden in God? And we're going to see that it means at least two things, probably more, but at least two things. First, it means knowing the strategy of the enemy. And then second, it means rejoicing in the subversion of God. And that sounds a little confusing, but we're going to explain it knowing the strategy of the enemy, and rejoicing in the subversion of God. Uh, You might find it helpful to have the text in front of you. We're going to look at all of the verses in this psalm. So if you want to have the text out so you can look at it, that's that's good. Verses 3 and 4. These enemies who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Some strange language here that we don't use all the time. This phrase, wet their tongues like swords. This is imagery taken from the old practice of wetting a sharpening stone in order to put an edge on a metal blade. And then this phrase, bitter words aimed like arrows. This is purposeful and premeditated, which is different than losing your temper and yelling at somebody, right? This is purposeful and premeditated. Shooting from ambush. This is using the element of surprise and then suddenly without fear, we might say without remorse. No fear of getting in trouble. What are we talking about? This is the description of a predator. The strategy of the enemy is that of a predator hunting its prey. And some of you, dear friends, listen to me if you can. You have been victims of human predators who have done you very real harm. You've been abused either physically or sexually or emotionally. You've been hurt with words that have pierced you with their cruelty. You've had someone in your family or at school or at work turn on you suddenly and unexpectedly and betray you and then tear you down. And some of you bear very old wounds and old scars from that pain. And you bear them on your body or on your heart or on your mind from these attacks. But others of you, you know what? Others of you came here this morning with fresh wounds, that have not yet scarred over or healed. And whether the harm inflicted to you was decades ago or actually as recent as this morning, the invitation for you in this moment through Psalm 64 is to ask God to hide you, to secret you away, to protect you, to give you safe haven and sanctuary. That's the invitation here. The strategy of the enemy is first predatory, but it's worse than that. It keeps going, verses five and six. These enemies hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. They search out injustice saying, we have accomplished a diligent search. And then this interesting phrase, for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. So the strategy of the enemy is not only predatory, it is also secretive in not one but two ways. First, secret from others, that's obvious. Second, not so obvious, secret from themselves. And this points to the reality that not only do people hurt each other in private and secret invisible ways, they do, that's true, but so often the people who hurt others are blind to their own wickedness. Isn't that true? This phrase for the inward mind and heart of a person are deep. Y'all, listen, we don't understand ourselves, do we? As anyone who has ever sat in a therapist's office and attempted true deep inner work has realized, we cannot plumb the depths of ourselves, much less anybody else. And hear me, almost nobody does evil on purpose knowing it to be evil. Almost nobody does that. But almost everybody does evil believing that either they are doing good or that what they're doing is no big deal. This is why predators usually don't know that they're predators. This is why abusers do not often think of themselves as abusers. And if you need an example of this, you don't have to look any further than our gospel lesson this morning, which Danny read just a few moments ago from John chapter 8. There's this story about this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Think about the story. The religious leaders who brought the woman are predators. They are. Think about it. What kind of work was required to catch this woman? Premeditation. Plotting. Scheming, watching, waiting, careful timing, sudden pouncing, all secretive predatory work, all for the purpose of doing what they believed to be right. But there's some self deception at play here, isn't there? Because did they bring two people into the town square? Mm mm, just one. The man is conspicuously absent. How convenient that they caught her the same morning that Jesus was visiting, scheduled to visit the temple. There's some self-deception at play here. This woman is being used, manipulated, and preyed upon by religious leaders, by clergy. It is not too much of a stretch to see in this story a sad and troubling precursor to the ways in which the church, rather than being a hiding place, a safe haven, and a sanctuary as it was created by God to be for the world, instead becomes a predator itself. Thus, the church images, in this case, not the God who is safe, but the devil who is dangerous. First Peter 5.8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And too many children and women and men as well have been devoured by the church, the very church to which they turn to be hidden in safety. And so, listen, in the strategy of the enemy, which is predatory and secretive, we not only see the harm and the pain that so many of us, nearly all of us, have received in manifold ways. We also perhaps, just with just as much, if not more, horror and shame, behold something of a reflection of ourselves here, realizing that though we are made and called to be safe havens, we, in the depths of our beings in which we barely know or understand, are actually doing harm to each other and to our neighbors. Y'all, it is too easy to read this psalm only as a victim And to avoid reading it as an enemy. And to avoid knowing that there are real human beings out there in this world who bear wounds and scars from us. Now, in the midst of the depths of the pain of that realization, the author makes a quick and surprising turn. The psalmist begins with this cry, this desperate plea. And then in verse 7, God answers decisively but counterintuitively. Here's what happens. Verses seven and eight. But God shoots his arrow at them. I didn't even know that was in the Bible. God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. In other words, God has this way of quickly turning the tables on wicked people and in fact using their own wickedness to overthrow them. God, in other words, subverts the wickedness of the enemy. This is like the spiritual equivalent of judo. Think about it. Judo is this like martial art where you use your enemy's force or momentum against them. So if you're proficient at judo, you don't have to be like big and strong. You just have to be good at subverting the energy of your enemy. God is so subtle, so deft, so in control that God almost never has to use brute force to defeat enemies. He doesn't have to. The force of their own evil properly subverted, subverted is enough. So if you're thinking to yourself, that sounds a little abstract. Uh, you've actually lived this and here's how you've lived it. You told a lie. You, you would not do that. I told a lie, right? You tell a lie and you make yourself, to make yourself look better, right? And to make someone else not look so good. And then you have to tell another lie to prop up that first lie and then another one and another one. And eventually the stress of all those lies cracks and the people you're lying to realize that you're not trustworthy and you suffer from that, right? Where is God in the midst of that? He is all up and in it and through it. God is subverting your own wickedness to bring you to your senses. This is why, both in our individual lives and in the world at large, things tend to get worse before they get better. A predator or an abuser or a dictator (laughs) – pushes their wickedness to the extreme and then their own pride and their own selfishness and their own cruelty end up being their downfall. And God is in that. God hides his people. He protects his people. He gives safety to his people by subverting the enemy. And when you are finally safe, when you finally do get to that place of refuge and you are hidden from your enemies and you are protected, you know what's around the corner? Joy. Always. Always joy is right around the corner, which is why the psalm ends the way it does. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then all mankind fears, and they tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. So how does rejoicing come out of wickedness? That doesn't seem intuitive to me. Just think about, let's just step back and think about the story arc of this psalm, Okay. It begins with this fearful cry for help to be hidden in God. And then it moves to this knowing and seeing of the predatory, secretive ways of the enemy. And then God subverts the enemy with their own evil, and it all ends in safety and joy. So you might say that according to Psalm 64, God brings joy out of evil. God brings rejoicing out of the predatory, secretive wickedness of your enemies who have done or are doing or will continue to do harm to you. How on earth is that possible? We'll consider this. Uh, Question, Jesus had real enemies, yes? Enemies who lied about him, enemies who attacked him with their words, enemies who asked questions to try to trap him, enemies who used race baiting and gaslighting. Like, you thought those were new things. Uh Uh-uh. Those are old ideas. Those are old ploys, Right? And Jesus experienced it just like you did. And Jesus, being a Jewish rabbi, would have prayed Psalm 64 every week. Every week. These words that we're reading this morning and and examining are the same words that came off the lips of Jesus. So question, how did God the Father answer the prayer to be hidden from enemies from God the Son? How did God the Father answer this prayer from the lips of Jesus? Well, think about it. Jesus was arrested by his enemies. He was accused by his enemies. He was tortured by his enemies. He was killed by his enemies. Jesus' enemies won, right? They got everything they wanted. So God the Father did not answer his prayer, right? Wrong. God the Father is the master of subversion. God used the cross and the death of Jesus to not only overthrow Jesus' enemies, but to overthrow the enemy the devil, and also the great last enemy, death itself. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection three days later is a kind of subversive spiritual judo, taking the enemy's momentum and using it against him, using death to defeat death. And so the subversive gospel of Jesus becomes not only the means by which you and I are rescued and saved, but also the ways in which we are hidden from our enemies in this life as well. In other words, the gospel, the subversive gospel of Jesus, not only hides us from the great enemies of the devil and death, but it also is the way that God hides us from our enemies in this life, in the here and now. And if you need some imagination for that, let's go back to our gospel text in John chapter eight. How does Jesus protect the woman who is being manipulated and used? Well. What does he do? He just says one sentence. I mean, that's it. Jesus says, let the one who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Just one subversive sentence that draws out their sin in an indirect way. Jesus uses their sin, their past, to prevent them from sinning any further against her. He uses the enemy's wickedness to defeat the enemy's wickedness. Y'all, there is no safer place to be than hidden in Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 says, uh, of someone who is a believer, your life is hidden with Christ in God, which means not only your physical body, but your mind and your emotions and your desires and your loves and your longings, every part of you that makes you you is hidden in Jesus. You belong with him. You are safe in him. He is base. Every time you feel afraid, you run to him and you hide in him. And y'all, you can do this in prayer anywhere, at any time, with anyone. There is that inner place within yourself where you flee to Jesus and you hide in him whenever you feel afraid. You can also do this in an outward way by retreating to silence and solitude, just like we talked about last week. You know how you can also do this? You can also do this by fleeing to the church. Now, listen. Because that threw, that threw some of you off. Listen. The church, just like the people of Israel before her, has failed in a multitude of ways. We know this. But that failure has not erased the vocation of the church, which is to be a sanctuary, a hiding place, a refuge for the vulnerable. Uh, Diane Langberg, who has done extensive uh, counseling for like over four decades uh, on church based trauma, has this to say. A look at the suffering humanity would lead us to the realization that trauma is perhaps the greatest mission field of the 21st century. Meaning that if you are wondering where you will minister, where you will serve, where you'll be useful and helpful and loving and caring and compassionate to others. How will you go about doing that? You do not have to look any further than the pain in the life of the person sitting next to you or the pain in the life of your neighbor. Y'all, how will our neighbors be hidden in God the Father if they do not first find a hiding place in mother church? We are base, y'all. That's us. That's our vocation. That's our calling. We are base, or rather, we're meant to be. We are to say to our vulnerable neighbors, You are safe here. How do we begin our service today? I know everybody got here for like the very beginning of the service. That's okay. I'm not trying to shame anybody. But how does our service begin? To all who are weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire hope, to all who are strangers and yearn for community. And to whoever else will come, anybody else, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that concluding phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the part that makes all the difference. Because there are a lot of folks and institutions and places in this world that are trying to be hospitable, and that's great. But y'all, if all we have to offer is our own welcome, our own safety, then we will just recapitulate the sins and woes of the church over the centuries. And we don't want to do that, do we? No, we want to offer real safety, which means we have to offer safety in somebody besides ourselves. We have to offer the safety of Jesus. And so we must become the kind of people who are actually finding our hiding place, our place of refuge, our safe Haven, not so much in each other, but in Jesus. And when we do that, we then have something to offer to our vulnerable neighbors And as we begin to embody that kind of safety in our communal life together, then and only then, as the safety of Jesus is embodied in the safety of his people, then the church does become a sanctuary. And we have to be careful not to separate out the individual from the institution here. Right? The church will be a hiding place for the vulnerable when we offer others the kind of safety that we have found in God through Jesus. And, y'all, While Mother Church has a long history of failing at this, she also, thanks be to God, has an even longer history of actually offering beautiful sanctuary and refuge to people. Let's just think about some of these. The early church offering shelter to slaves and to women who are fleeing for a place of safety. The early church seeking after discarded children among the city dumps and bringing them in and giving them shelter and raising them. The early church welcoming in the deceased and the dying during the plagues. Think about the church here in the United States, some even in the city of Richmond, assisting with the Underground Railroad. Think about Cory ten Boom hiding Jewish refugees fleeing from the Nazis. Think about the ways that even some of you are welcoming strangers into your homes and feeding them at your tables and giving them a safe place to sleep in your beds. Y'all... What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10? Every time you give a cold drink of water to someone in my name, you are doing this. This is our invitation for our vulnerable neighbors to find a hiding place in God by first finding a hiding place in us. Y'all, I love watching my children flee to their mother and I love how safe they feel with her. It's a beautiful thing. She is base for them all day, every day. And our prayer is that we would find the same kind of base in God the Father. And may we actually be that same kind of base as the church for our neighbors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you have become a safe haven and a refuge for us in Jesus. Thank you that all who flee to you for refuge are never turned away. Would you, by the working of your Holy Spirit in our midst, cultivate amongst us the kind of safety so that we might be a hiding place for our vulnerable neighbors. Please do this work amongst us, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.